In these uncertain times, I want to bring you solutions. I don't want to dwell on the problems. Twitter and the 24-hour news cycle are doing plenty of that. Instead, I want to bring you the best minds who have big ideas and the passion to execute on them. So today, I'm joined by Ant Morehouse. He's a champion problem solver who cut his teeth in the military before discovering entrepreneurialism in the US. That led him to venture capital investing, where he helped nurture startups towards growth. And now, he's back in Australia, where he's furiously retooling his social enterprise, EarthTech, to discover and fund the enterprises that are working on solutions to beat the coronavirus, and more long-term, to help boost the recovery of the businesses and communities that are most hard hit. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions can have an impact and even help the world recover from Corona. I really enjoyed speaking to Anne. He's a great storyteller and he's had a really rich life and he shares the lessons well. What I took from this conversation is that the new breed of businesses, the digital natives, they really have resilience and adaptability at their core. They're agile because they have to be in such a competitive industry. But that works well in a health crisis amid a pandemic where staff can shift to work online and the wisdom of the crowd can be distilled to solve big problems. Anyway, Ant explains it all far better than me. So let's dive in. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you want to leave a review, then jump onto iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds and it really does help to get the show out to a wider audience. All right, here's my conversation with Ant Morehouse. Here we go. Ant Morehouse, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very short notice, but time scales have shortened dramatically in the last month. How are you going? Uh, really uh, well, I guess, considering, John. Good to be on the program. Thanks for fitting me in. You know, there's so much to talk about. There's obviously coronavirus and how your enterprise has, has shifted to really try and find some solutions. But before we get into that, I'd love to look back to the time you spent some time in the military. And I can only assume that established some pretty strong fundamentals around self-discipline and leadership. So I'd love to hear how that's helped you later in life and how, you, how it might be helpful in times of crisis, like right now amid the outbreak of, of coronavirus. Yeah, it's weird. So I spent a little less than a decade, about nine years in the Australian military, mainly in the special forces. And I was a counterterrorism commander there. Uh, and then after that, I, I sort of became an entrepreneur when I was 27 and, and I knew no one in business, had no education in business, wrote 20 business plans. Only one of them was any good. And it was actually in this crisis management 24 seven emergency response industry. So I started a business in that, in that trade really. And the military stuff, I really haven't thought about, you know, that, that was sort of, let's say, 17 to kind of 27. And then the crisis management stuff was like 27 to 37. Now I'm 42. So I haven't thought about the military in a long time. And I haven't really thought about crisis management for the last five years. And then all of a sudden, all of these archive files in the back of my mind are, are coming to the surface. And so I went through officer training in the military, the Australian Defence Force Academy and the Royal Military College, and then through the infantry and then into the special forces. And, and ultimately what the military is all about is preparing for things that are inevitably going to go wrong. So there's this military adage, no plan ever lasts the first shot in a battle. So the point is that you come up with a plan and then uh, in a battle, the plan goes to hell. 
And so you've got to be working on contingencies. So if this happens, we'll do this. If this happens, we'll do this. And so when most people at 17, 18 are at university learning how to be a doctor or an accountant or a, an engineer or what have you, basically, how do we get from A to B? We were learning about how to come up with a plan, sure, but then you know, 80% of our mental capacity was was focused around not if something goes wrong, when something goes wrong, how are we going to fight through it? And how are we going to sort of make the plan as resilient as possible, given the tumultuousness of, of the situation? So, yeah, all of those sort of weird skill sets are, are coming back to the surface right now. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's interesting that planning goes out the window when the first shots are fired. And I think pretty much everybody's 2020 plans are well and truly out the window. And you know, everybody's scrambling to find a way to deal with it, to shift, and I guess to manage it. You know, resilience is a big part of that. How do you generally feel? You know, you've said you've pulled up those old folders that were that were in the archives. How do you generally feel about, I guess it's a global response, it's a tough question, but how do you see it from that, that core crisis management perspective of how, you know, we've shut down economies and, um, and we've got this social distancing, which is a radical thing for humans that are social beings at their core. How do you see it generally? So in crisis management, practice I guess there's there's three real phases or at least the way I like to practice it there's three real phases so the first is the emergency response where where we're doing triage and we're trying to stop the bleeding um, and save the vital organs and then we get into a more holistic whole of organization stakeholder management uh, crisis response which is really focused on how do we stay in business? How do we deal with all of our external stakeholders, our supply chains, our customers, our staff, our investors, the government? And then after that, we get into the recovery, which is, okay, the, the crisis is kind of over. We've reached the bottom and now we're climbing our way out of it. How do we get back to normal or at least how do we get back to a new normal? And I think that if I can break that up into three sectors, right? So I, I think the not-for-profit sector has come out of the emergency and they, and they are really stood up and are responding really proactively to this because that's their trade, you know, in, in many respects. The NGO sector, particularly those providing emergency support or social support, they're not that dissimilar to the military in times of crisis, whether it's bushfires or floods or or, uh, or in this case, pandemics, they're used to standing up and responding. Their standard operating procedures, if you like, their ways of doing business are, are quickly adapting to this. Now, with that said, some of those organisations may be facing reductions in funding. So that, that's sort of, you know, that, that, that's, that's obviously a really big factor. I think the Australian government is just getting out of the initial emergency phase and getting into a more proactive leadership phase. And I think governments around the world are starting to get into that phase. I think what's really interesting out of the Asian region, the Asian economies that were affected by SARS, they responded so quickly because they've been here before. They had to dust off some plans, but they had those plans. Whereas in the West, we've, we've had to kind of, you know, really scrounge, I think, to sort of come up to them. But, but I think governments are, are starting to deal with this proactively and starting to lead through the crisis. I think corporations and investor groups, et cetera, I think for the most part, we, they are still in the initial emergency response because we don't know where the bottom is. And until we know where the bottom is, it's tough to, it's tough to plan um, and it's tough to work out. So I think most organisations are still in the, 
how to save vital organs, you know, how to stop the bleeding. So that, that's the three ways I like to look at it. And I, I think it's important for leaders out there to be working out which phase of this are you in because there's so much mixed messaging going on there around you should be thinking about long-term innovation or you think should be thinking about uh, just cash flow or you should be thinking about how your organisations, what it's going to look like after this. It can be really conflicting for organisations to work out well, what are the priorities right now and what are the priorities going to look like in a week's time and anything beyond that it's just too far into the future because the situation is only just starting to take shape. That's it. That's it. I think that that planning really can be paralyzing for some groups and, and it's all unprecedented. That's right. That we don't have the, the history of SARS and MERS and, and those crises in the past that, that really did seem to be otherworldly. You know, they were far away and they didn't quite touch us. And I think that's how many of us felt in January. We're just like, you know, look what's happening in China. And then suddenly, well, it's here. And now it's global. And, and what does that mean? And, and are we really shutting down our economies? It's quite staggering. And look, that's great to, to see that from the perspective of, of the NGOs, as you said, the government and investors. Now let's talk about EarthTech, um, your social enterprise. It was launched at the end of 2019 and you know, really took off in some way. So I'd love to hear about that. But now that the world has been hit by the corona crisis, it's diverted a lot of attention. You know, How have you guys pivoted? Yeah, so we started at the start of 2019, spent most of 2019 planning and then, and then launched a global call to action, a global challenge around finding the best youth-led ideas that can help humanity solve climate and social issues linking to the United Nations global goals. So EarthTech's mission is to help however we can humanity to meet the United Nations global goals by 2030. And that, that purpose remains intact and it's more necessary, we think, now than it was a month ago. So we had a very small budget. Uh, I think we spent about 15 grand on marketing and we were hoping to get mainly some Australian teams with maybe some teams through Southeast Asia because it was just our pilot program. But it turned out that it resonated and it resonated globally with youth audiences that wanted to have impact now. And so we were looking at what Greta was doing and this massive advocacy movement, and we believe in that. But what's next? What comes after the protests? And so we really set this up to engage with young audiences that wanted to create something and be taken seriously and get the expertise and the funding they needed to turn their idea into a reality. So we ended up with 1,500 entrepreneurs we had 855 submissions and these individuals went through a six-week program online, 100% online. How did you do the outreach for that? How did you, you know, the, the, the youth-led group is difficult to reach? Yeah, so the marketing that we did for the, the inaugural EarthTech Challenge initially was pretty poor or at least it got a poor response. So the initial plan was to target universities and schools and we were doing targeted Facebook ads and Instagram and blah, blah, blah. The bit that really worked in the end was directly reaching out to youth forums and youth leadership groups. And then it just started to, well, last month I would have said go viral. We can't use that word anymore. So I, I guess it, it just it just started to get a groundswell. And, and we ended up with applications in from 73 countries. Nigeria, for example, you know, we had hundreds of applications. And ultimately what it turns out, the feedback that connected with these young people is it was really around impact. It wasn't just about sort of a, a competition where people came and 
stood up in front of a conference room and delivered to a bunch of people in suits and, and then everybody went home. The winners, the 10 winners, we flew them from wherever they were to Makepeace Island, which is uh, Radix Ali's and Richard Branson's and Brett Godfrey's island off the coast of Noosa. And we had an amazing four-day experience with investors, with mentors, with experts from impact, from technology, from entrepreneurship, from investment, etc. And then there was these 20 young entrepreneurs and they came in from, we had two teams from Nigeria, one team from Uganda, two from India, one from Bangladesh, from Spain, from Australia, etc. And it was just the United Nations of young change makers, of young entrepreneurs. And it was amazing. It was truly, truly special. And the, and the ideas that came out of it, what we asked them to do was, yes, submit a pitch deck after the six-week program, but most importantly, to submit a five-minute video that really spoke from the heart and spoke to the problem with real authenticity. And the winning teams really did that. You know, their, their videos were just emotionally impactful. Of the 855 teams, we put the shortlist of 50 in front of 100 plus expert judges and we've, we've got some voting tech that it's called subjective logic and so each judge had 24 questions to answer uh, between one and ten and then all of the answers were kind of pulled and we could cut them and break them up for different sort of data set analysis and that enabled us to work out which were the best teams because we had 25 experts judging each and every team so from a due diligence point of view it was really, really efficient. You know, we were, we were able to get some amazing people judging these teams and then a bunch of those experts came and joined us on the island. So that was amazing and we were very close to closing out a, a seed plus round, a 500K round off the back of that and, and we had two offers of 250K each from institutionals. So that was terrific. And then we went over to Boulder, Colorado the week after the, the summit to start planning for the next one, the Global Earth Tech Challenge. We were gonna base out of Boulder. One, because it's an amazing location. It's in one of the heartlands of, of impact investment. And also I lived over there for four years, so, so I had a, a relatively good network. So it's just this surrealness now. I mean, my co-founder, Brian, and I went over there. You know, We spent a week cruising around Boulder and the Rocky Mountains, like scouting for the next location, meeting with incredible indigenous leaders and artists and entrepreneurs and people in the impact space and, and people in the traditional investment community as, as well as the impact investment community. And the very last thing we did was, was pull a bunch of people to that, uh, together. We picked the location and this just this majestic location up in the Rocky Mountains and the world was our oyster, you know, it just felt fantastic. And then we jumped on the plane, came back. I was meant to go to, to Singapore and, and to London to do, some more, um, to, to do some more investor relations stuff. And then the whole world changed. And so the funding dried up and the team was at risk of, of not being fed and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so then we get into crisis management mode. And so I've got this incredible team who's moved into, you know, we, we can pay them a bit, but they've moved into a, 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 almost like an employee equity position so they're able to they're basically accruing equity in the business while we can't pay them you know their market salaries but everyone's committed to the cause which is incredible and then we sat down and worked out well, okay what, what do we have that can be useful right now and what we were trying to do was basically line up a strategy which said all right how do we feed our people how do we keep people employed how do we be useful to the current situation 
and the situation that's going to develop over the next one month, three months, 12 months. And how do we do those two things lining up to our purpose? And the purpose being helping humanity to achieve the United Nations global goals by 2030. And so we looked at our internal capabilities and, and what we've proven that we're capable of. And it, and it really does come around how do we engage through the internet to put out a call to action to people that want to make a difference, people that want to make, make impact now. How do we get them connected with experts who can help basically do due diligence through the internet and help to determine the cream that rises to the top? And how do we support them? Not just with funding, although that's important, but how do we support them with mentorship, with expertise, with access to markets, with, with networks? And so it didn't take us all that long to sort of rehash the plan, cancel the bolder kind of version two of the normal thing, at least for now. So how do we get not just young startups, but everybody in society, a factory and rural wherever in Australia, who have a capability and a capacity that if retooled, could be part of the short, medium and long-term health, economic and social impact to this, if they were able to innovate, to retool, to get the help they need to do that, then, you know, if there's 20 people working at that factory, that's 20 people who aren't on the dole queue. That's 20 people who are actually having a positive impact on the crisis, not a burden, I guess, to the public purse. And so we're going to be launching that initiative in the next month. We're looking for partners, whether that's financial or tech or media or corporate or NGO to get this happening. And, and we, we don't think we're going to be a massive part of the overall solution. You know, we, we don't see ourselves as a panacea or anything like that, but we do think we have a capability that's almost by chance, by luck, completely in design to be 100% remote. That's what we're trying to do now. And in addition to that, some of the teams that came through cohort one, the winning team in particular, a team out of Bangladesh called Safewheel, they have this really cool innovation, which is a bit of tech, but, but mainly it's just smarts around getting rickshaw-sized ambulances into remote villages in Bangladesh. And so we're currently trying to get some support to them because with like $50,000, they can have five ambulances you know, cruising around rural Bangladesh for $500,000, they can positively impact 14.8 million people with educations into the, into the mosques, into the schools, into the community groups, uh, distributing medical support and, and providing emergency transportation services for a fraction of the cost that we can in, in the West. And there's, a, there's some other teams now that we're working with to do the same thing, to retool their approach to, towards the fight. So uh, on almost no budget, we are busier than ever. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I'm amazed at the sort of agility and resilience of you guys. You know, I think launching any, any program, any organisation, any enterprise is risky. But I think if, if instead you'd launched a, I don't know, a cafe, a bricks and mortar cafe in December, you know, you'd be feeling a lot more pain. But instead, you guys sort of have this inbuilt agility. You've been able to pivot, you know, even the way you pay your staff, your purpose. Um, you're still solving the global goals. I think that really does define resilience, which is, which is the word that keeps popping up whenever anybody says that these challenges are unprecedented. And I think we do need to build that into any organisation now. We've seen that with climate change and the reality of, of the weather and how the climate is getting more and more unruly. Do you think that you 
sort of built that in, even if it wasn't intentional? Was that sort of perhaps it's just part of the tech mindset that you need that, that you've been able to shift and, and adapt to these situations? I think it's definitely part of the tech mindset. It's definitely part of the entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, it's definitely part of the social enterprise slash impact mindset. You know, when we think about impact investors, I mean, they're looking for impact and they're looking for a return on investment, but maybe they're more patient. Really, really what, when I set about this kind of world or, or creating this kind of organisation, for me, what it stemmed from was how do we have a professional, a meaningful professional life, basically doing epic shit? How do we do something really epic? that is good for society and isn't just about profit. Because I did that for a long time, right? I was a profit, revenue-driven entrepreneur. I didn't necessarily know that it was, uh, I don't know, let's, let's call it wrong or perhaps not good enough. I don't think it's wrong, but it's just, it's just not fulfilling enough, quite frankly, from my point of view. But I did it because that's what all the books that I was reading said and that's all of my advisors said and that's that's what we focused on in a boardroom it was about you know how do we pump our revenue and pump our profit as much as possible and it just wasn't fulfilling enough quite frankly and so how do you how do you do something like big and epic that's good for society that you can really enjoy along the journey and so those three things i call it the triple crown that's what i sort of set out to to try to do in earth tech and meeting brian was the embodiment of that and he ran tedx noosa for three years uh, and comes from a, a design tech point of view, and and I I guess come from an entrepreneurial scale point of view, but then also from this like crisis management business resilience point of view. So, I think the crisis management side of Earth Tech is a pivot. We weren't necessarily thinking about it in crisis mode, although when you really look at our purpose around you know helping the United Nations to achieve the global goals by 2030, we've been saying for a year and a bit now that the world is in a crisis. We were just focusing more around the environmental side and the social side around poverty and equality and education, particularly in the developing world. I think the opportunity here in the long term, and there's unfortunately we have to go through a lot of pain first, but the opportunity here is that we've never faced a crisis on a global level that's brought us together as a, as a humanity. And, you know, I always hark back to a, a Will Smith movie yeah, I don't know, in the 90s, called Independence Day. Basically, the, the storyline goes that all the nations are fighting amongst themselves. Then there's an alien invasion, which causes all of the countries in the world to come together and fight as one and be one humanity. And so when we created Earth Tech, we kind of created it with this notion of we we have to operate across borders. Like these, these problems are global, so we have to act globally and, and our current systems aren't really well equipped to deal with that. And what this crisis is doing, what this pandemic is doing is making us all realise the interconnectedness of all of us, regardless of where we, where we live and regardless of our circumstances. And so I'm hoping in the long term that this creates a new humanity for us all and makes us realise what's truly important to us as as humans really and the and the planet that we live on and so yeah i think resilience has to be part of that and looking at the way that nature deals with sustainability because i think if nothing else what this crisis has shown us all like the tide has gone out and most of us have been caught with our pants down and i hold myself no differently from that it, it's just the the fragility of our current system is, is, you know, it didn't take, it didn't take a lot, to be honest, to, to really bring it to its knees. 
So whatever comes out of this, whatever we choose to build off the back end of this has to be more resilient and it has to be more sustainable. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that's, it is a good point about this is really the first time we've had a common enemy. And I think certainly in the modern world where we have global communications and we are all working together, we've really never seen anything like it. There's always been, you know, wars and famines going on in faraway places and, and we can kind of dodge it. But now, you know, the things that we love, which is being able to, to fly internationally and, and have holidays and those sorts of things are kind of the thing that have, have brought us undone. So I think that's a really important perspective. And, and hopefully people have seen that, you know, humans are having a huge impact on the world and that if we do work together, we can make things stop and we can make things happen. I think in terms of climate change, there's always been this argument that where does the lot of humans, we can't really affect something as big as the climate. But we've seen that if you shut down industry in China for a month, you can clear all of the pollution, the birds can come back and the water will suddenly be clean. So I think that's quite staggering. Also, perhaps that you can get funding, that governments can find a couple of trillion dollars to shore up economies when they fail. So I think that's another important lesson. But that's all getting a little bit macro. Coming back to the micro, which is what you guys are all about, I think this platform, super interesting, seems to me to be a, um, a broader and more sort of focused way to run the VC model. And I'm really interested in how you guys identify, I guess, the winners, but really the best ideas. And I think that, to me, it seems that that's the tech that's getting all of your, your thinking together is what you guys are really good at. So can you talk a little bit more about the AI program? The, uh, you're working with Houston We Have. I love that name. It's difficult to put it in a sentence, but kind of like the Houston We Have a problem. That AI engine. Yeah, I'd love to just talk a little bit more about how you dig up and find the best ideas. Sure. Well, yeah, Houston We Have, right? So Houston We Have a problem or Houston We Have liftoff. That's the essence of the, of the tech. And so the, the tech is designed to help governments, organisations make decisions based on really complex scenarios. And the reason we've picked it and we're, and we're using it and we're partnering with them really comes back to my, I guess, perception of the VC industry being quite inefficient. And so, you know, VCs are spending about 50% of their OPEX on deal flow, uh, attracting the best deals, um, processing the best deals, doing due diligence on them, you know, partnering with them, supporting them, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very expensive and it requires a lot of flying around and a lot of face-to-face -face meetings. And, and ultimately, when I was in Boulder for four years, I was, I was uh, investing in some startups, many of whom that were coming out of accelerator programs like Techstars. I said many of whom, uh, I didn't invest that, in that many, <laughs> but uh, a bunch of them were coming out of uh, accelerator programs. I was doing some mentorship at some fairly standard tech accelerators. And, and then more importantly, from my personal point of view, into some social enterprise stuff. And I funded a social enterprise competition and saw what competitions, challenges, like X prize type, type things, they bring out the best in us. And, they, and I think they always have. And then, and then, doing some masterclasses, et cetera, inside a social enterprise university, working with these young people around how to kind of have their cake and eat it too, you know, how to do some good in the world while generating a return for investors to enable them to scale. What I saw through all of that, though, was, was a lot of mandrolic processes. Even though it was in the tech industry, there wasn't a lot of tech that was helping these VCs to, to do deal flow. And so our mechanism is that we put out a call to action and we create a carrot 
So the call to action in this in the first version was a global call to action for people under the age of 30. The prize was being flown out to make peace island, uh, Radix Ali's and Brett Godfrey's and Richie Branson's island for four days and have an experience. And it works. Like, so most of these things are about a cash prize, you know, winner takes all. And that's fine. We have nothing against that. But it's been proven that experiences are more meaningful and, they, and the memories of them last longer and the connections, most importantly, sort of last. So that was important to us. And our tech is not, it's not complex, but the user interface and more importantly, the user experience in a holistic sense is, is pretty damn good. And, and Brian Keyes, my co-founder, I mean, he's, he's a John Ives kind of design guy. So the, that user experience is really important for us. And so as opposed to a accelerator program where everybody flies in and spends, you know, three months in Sydney or in Boulder or in San Francisco or something like that. It's done online. And what that enables us to do is to kind of break the back of of one of the things that I'm most critical about with the ventures space. And my assessment is that the ventures industry is built for people that kind of are like me. So well-educated, middle, upper-class white men in the developed world, and even more specific than that, in large cities. And so when I was doing, you know, some mentorship and investment and what have you in Boulder, it was awesome. I loved it. However, outside of the social enterprise university, I was trying to help people that had come out of Ivy League schools. You know, their parents were well-heeled. Like, if their tech didn't work, if their enterprise didn't work, they were going to go and do something else. Like there was other options for them. You know, you come out of Stanford with a degree, like you've got opportunities. Whereas what we really wanted to target is people who had a really deep sense of the problem that they were facing. And the persona that we were chasing was a 17 year old girl, although the age is, doesn't matter too much. It's just the persona. A 17 year old girl in a small village in a remote part of a developing world country. Like, someone who has a deep, deep sense of the problem, whether that's social or, 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 or environmental, and, and has an idea to solve that for her local community, as long as she's got an internet connection, as long as she's got a, a smart-ish phone, she can get access to world-class content and information and process and know-how and workflow. And if it's judged to be good enough, can get support and get funding and get up and going. And then there's a mechanism that if it's working in her local environment, or maybe it can work nationally and maybe it can work internationally. Because we designed it for that, it can just work really, it's really light. It's easy to deploy. It's really light. And it can touch the four corners of a a region, a nation or a globe really quickly. So then the only trick is what question are we asking? And so the first question that we asked and what parameters are we setting? So the first question was, right, 17 years old to 30 years old, any of the global goals, go and let's see what we get. This one is more focused around corona. But again, like ultimately the partners will help us decide the specific question. But once we ask the question and once we set the parameters and once we customise the voting tech, then away we go. So in terms of the voting tech, the theory behind it is subjective logic. There's eight categories around the idea, the timeliness, its readiness for the market, the validation it's had so far, the viability of the tech, the proof that they've got to go to market strategy, the the financial model, uh, and then most importantly, the impact. And each of those categories, the questions are asked a little bit like a Myers-Briggs test for anyone who's, who's done those, where there's 
multiple questions that are kind of looking to answer the same thing, but they're coming at it from different directions. And so if an individual judge judges, let's say, all tens on all three questions in a category, then it's giving a high probability score of that solution. And then you layer that up where it's not just one judge, it's let's say 25 judges. And then you're getting a really holistic picture. We were splitting the judges up depending on their specialization, depending on their expertise. And then we were engaging a bunch of those judges to then come in and mentor the best teams once they were picked. Where we currently see the problem is that there's huge amounts of money coming in through a central funnel from governments and it's being dispersed through the same old means. You know, it's coming in through procurement teams, large, large procurement teams that are used to doing things in a normal bureaucratic process when things are normal. And there's a bottleneck at the moment because these poor, poor people are having to decide on how to spend the taxpayers' money on solutions, but they're having to do it in a really centralised way. So what we're trying to do is provide a grassroots, bottom-up approach to, to get ideas to the surface so the cream can rise to the top and then bring in all of these experts from all of these different fields that many of whom right now are facing despair. And there's a bunch of people who would like to help if they could, but they don't know how. And they're the stakeholders that we're trying to connect with. Yeah, very interesting because I think you know, right now it's, it's what is the solution and it's such a huge problem. And while I'm assuming that you guys aren't sort of, you know, vying to pull in immunologists and come up with a cure, it's more long-term than that, right? That this is going to be a huge dislocation to economies and communities and that it's the recovery that it's that. I guess it's not long-term, it's the sort of middle term. It's, you know, the next two to three months are going to be, you know, crisis mode, but then it's after that. Is that the stage that you guys are feeling you'll come into for that kind of economic and community recovery process? I mean, what kind of enterprises do you feel like this, this next program will aim to fund? The first priority, because we are in an immediate crisis mode, is, uh, and, and we're looking to add a category here around uh, in, in the questioning, it's about solutions that can be brought to market within 30 days. So if we come back to the scenario around, you know, the factory with 20 workers that have got capacity and capability to do something, and if they retool that, they can provide some sort of support to the health, the economic or the social need that we're currently faced with. Like, it's not about ideas that can be brought to market in three years' time. It's ideas that can be brought to market either hyperlocally or locally or regionally or nationally or globally within 30 days. What we're going to see there is that there'll be a bunch of teams who aren't going to be ready in 30 days, but that's okay. They just become the second tier, if that makes sense. And so this probably isn't a university assignment kind of a thing. You know, it's, it's much more around exist. It's retooling existing capacity. We think that's the current priority, but the solution that it reaches out and touches has to be really holistic because at the moment we're all thinking about masks and ventilators and sanitization generally, and that's critically important. And there'll probably be some solutions that come through this that can help that. But there's also a bunch of other people thinking about it because it's the most pressing need. The way we've chosen to address this is by, again, coming back to the United Nations Global Goals. And there's five of them that link directly to COVID. And it, yes, it's around health. It's, a, it's also around sort of social need. It's also around education. It's also around equality. So the metrics are there, like the goals are there to be used. And it's the, 
The global goals aren't necessarily perfect, but they're the best plan that humanity currently has. And so we choose to always come back to them. And so, you know, that's the approach. And then whether it's a, a domestic or an international challenge in the, in the first instance, I guess really depends on the partners that come on board. That's the focus for us. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there's so much intellectual power out there. So many people that, you know, even if they're not laid off work, they're, they're working from home. They're really keen to get involved. And I think our governments are overburdened. Universities aren't really set up to, to sort of rapidly shift and set up, you know, systems of linkages and communications. I think that role of organising and deploying kind of solutions and ideas is really important. And, and it sounds like that's where you guys will fit in. So I think that's really useful and really exciting. Um, and so where can people reach you guys? Like how can people get uh, involved if they've heard this and they, I don't know, they might be investors, they might be social enterprises or they might want to get it out to their network. What's the best route for them to do that? Awesome. Yeah. So uh, the website is earthtech.io uh, and there's some information there. My email address is just ant at earthtech.io and ultimately I don't really like calling on too many warlike terms here, but we're trying to build a coalition of the willing. And this isn't about us. This isn't about EarthTech. We, we really don't care about the brand. We just want to help. We just want to be part of the solution here, right? And, and we think we have something to offer. But ultimately, what I think we are is, is a humble operating system that's helping bring the pieces together. The real power is out there in the pieces. And, and the pieces for us are the innovators, the investors, the buyers, and the buyers at the moment are governments and NGOs. Soon they'll be corporations, but corporations probably aren't quite ready yet. The expertise, uh, which is coming from the crowd, I guess, you know, so, and, it's, and it's broad and it's varied. It's, it's everything from doctors to engineers to accountants to lawyers to designers to UX people to storytellers, etc. And then ultimately the end user, and so one of the things that we're building in here is, is a mechanism so that the end users can tell us what they need. And so we can link the ideas to the need from a grassroots point of view. So we need all of those people. We'd love support from anywhere and it can be financial, it can be time, it can be expertise, it can be networks. Um, it's going to take all of us. Yeah, look, I think, I think it really does tie into the kind of the philosophy and, and the, the structures of impact investing, which is all about finding organisational, which I think is sort of business model um, solutions to big problems and, and applying capital to it. I think, as you said, you know, in the VC model being inefficient, we can't deploy capital quickly and it takes a lot of face-to-face -face and, and a lot of due diligence. So I think there's a lot of people out there, you know, my listeners who might feel, you know, this is when we should be acting, but... Um, the old structures really are too slow and a little bit heavy. And this might be a good way for them to sort of, yeah, think through deploying, even if it's just their intellectual power to add their, their thinking and that sort of thing to it. So really good to hear about all of that. And look, you've got so much energy. Uh, I love all of your ideas. Do you have any books or other resources that um, you could share that my audience might like that they can go deeper on all this stuff? Yeah, yeah. So... I mean, bold is is definitely one of mine. I can't remember the author, but it's but it's it's really going back to that singularity kind of piece around you know how to how to positively impact a billion people within ten years. There's a, a another one that I'm a massive fan of called Stealing Fire. There's kind of drug references in that that you know probably need a uh, uh, an explicit warning, but it, but it's basically around how to tap into flow 
and how to tap into different ways of coming up with ideas, I guess, outside of the frontal, the frontal cortex. So we, we spend so much time. It's what we learn at school. It's how to get things right 100% of the time. And I'm a massive believer in intuition and I'm a massive believer in, I guess, thinking outside the box ultimately to make more creative decisions. So I'm a big fan of that one as well. Yeah, great to hear um, Stealing Fire brought up. that. That's um, come up a lot for me recently. I've been doing some um, flow coaching because, uh, yeah, sort of, you know, getting into focus is, is sort of a challenge and something I really want to get better at. And, and, yeah, Stealing Fire has been brought up over and over. So that's uh, at the top of my list at the moment. Yeah, so the precursor to Stealing Fire is The Rise of Superman. Uh, same authors. It's really, really clever the way they've done it, especially like an elite athlete as, as one side of the authorship paired with a sci-fi writer and they're coming in to look at basically the exponential growth in humanity based on flow. And, and it all comes back to um, Shikne Nehi, I think his name is. I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I've screwed that up. But basically he, he was looking, he was Polish in World War II and was in the concentration camps. And he saw that even in that environment, some people were proactive and actually happy and other, other people weren't. And so he started that and built this whole framework around what we now call flow. And it's basically optimal human experience. And there's a very definitive matrix, I guess, around we've got to push ourselves just a little bit outside of our comfort zone. And they've, they've quantified it to be 4%. So we've got to be pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone 4% to achieve a flow state, which is something that we're interested in and it's interesting work uh, or it's an interesting problem that we're trying to solve. And it's not so far out of our comfort zone that it seems unobtainable, but we haven't done it quite the same thing before so we're not bored and then there's this whole chapter within that book around group flow and it looks at you know examples like miles davis's band how they would just there'd be such group flow that someone would take the music in a certain direction and magic would happen and then in an interview afterwards you know to be well how did you come up with that idea who came up with that idea and they they don't even know they don't even know what happened who came up with the idea because they were in such such amazing group flow so Rise of Superman, I think, really is the precursor to Stealing Fire. And I guess if, if you were to work out like what, what goes on inside my head, it's sort of bold plus Rise of Superman plus Stealing Fire. That's the trinity for me at the moment. Oh, really good. No, that's great. And I think, I think Flo is a very interesting one because in some ways um, people can sort of discredit it and be like, oh, look, I'm not really getting into that kind of modern psychology kind of stuff. But if you can point them to a time when they suddenly had perfect focus, were very creative, and they, they want to get back to that. If you can give that a name, call it flow, then every I think everybody can relate to that. And, and that's how I felt, certainly. And, you know, I find it as much, sometimes when I'm writing, I, I get in there and, and then suddenly two hours have gone and I've solved that solution and it's beautiful. At the same time, it might be when I'm surfing, when I'm going for a walk or even just sitting on a bus and having the thoughts flow and solve a solution just within within myself. So. It's an interesting one. I hope, I hope people, yeah, sort of take it for what it is and, and, um, and get something out of it. And, and glad to hear you've uh, got a lot out of it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to send you a link. So the authors of those books, there's a, there's a survey that people can do to find out what types of activities get them into flow and how they can continue to explore and experience that, you know, within their own lives and, and within their, their work lives as well. Really, really fascinating because, you know, some people get it while they're writing, others it's music, others it's adventure sports, others it's only in group dynamics. I, I think it's really, really, really important to explore. Good stuff. Love it. Hope people get into that. 
Well, look, Anne, really great to hear about everything you're up to. You're obviously very busy and, and time is of the essence to solve all of these problems. So we're going to get this one out quickly and spread the word. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for your time and, um, and let's stay in touch. Thank you, John, really appreciate it.